to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. And let us pray. God, we so easily categorize and judge rather than accept and love. Shape us into your dragnet, which exists to include every person. Amen. This morning, we are going to conclude our summer sermon series titled, The Kingdom of Heaven is Like in which Jesus likens rather than defines a kingdom called heaven to the complexity and mystery of human activity such as scattering seed and resting in trees and finding treasure and casting nets. By exploring these parables, it's our sincere hope to encourage a community that more fully embodies a kingdom like heaven, which gestures toward the mystery of God and life of Christ in this world. I am guessing that all of you at one time or another have been witness to a fish stuck on the back of a car. (laughs) Of course, I don't mean a real fish. I'm talking here about what is often called the Jesus fish. Uh, The Jesus fish can be as simple as two arcs that intersect at the end, making the shape of a fish. Or, as you've probably seen, the fish sometimes contains five Greek letters that spell out the word ichthus, which is an acronym for Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. According to church history, the fish became a symbol by the end of the second century used to identify churches and believers. And over the years, and up to this very day, the meaning of the fish has evolved. In other words, are you a church? Are you a believer? Are you part of the way? Are you in rather than out? Well then, by all means, display the ichthus, display the Jesus fish, for truly many think Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, is that which saves the world from eternal torment. For truly many think that is the gospel. For truly many think that is good news. From Matthew chapter 13, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught every kind of fish. And when it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I don't know about you, but what often stands out to me in parables and passages like this are Jesus' words about the end. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
based on language like this, many Christians today go immediately to conservative Christian theology and think that this means people who do not ask Jesus into their hearts will go to a place called hell forever. And it's this focus on the end that that very often constrains the gospel into determining who is saved and who is unsaved, who is going up and, and who is going down. But that, similar to three keys to financial success or four ingredients to lasting love, it's all too simple. Financial success and lasting love involve much more than three keys and four ingredients, just as a kingdom like heaven involves much more than a fish that delineates who is in and who is out, who's going up and who's going down, based upon what people believe. But before talking about the complexity of a kingdom called heaven in this morning's passage, I'd like to first demonstrate that what many Christians think about heaven and hell today is actually vastly different from what early Christians thought about the afterlife. In the earliest days, the first Christians heard, and throw them into the furnace of fire, and they thought about the furnace of fire as either annihilation meaning a person ceases to exist, or they thought about the furnace of fire as refinement. Sometimes the fire was called purging, which means a person is somehow cleansed and made new. Annihilation, the notion that a person isn't eternally tormented but mercifully extinguished, well, that is different from what many Christians think about hell today. And fire as refinement or purging, the the notion that judgment is not vindictive, but rather somehow mysteriously restorative. In other words, fire is a metaphor for a post-mortem process in which even the worst of people, many of the church fathers even thought Satan included, would be purged and cleansed and grow up into divine love. Well, that also is vastly different from what many Christians think about hell today. And yet, these are the very things that ancient Christians used to think. Of course, like most ideologies, these thoughts began to evolve over time. And so, by the third century, these ancient thoughts about hell began to fade. And the great Tertullian of Carthage clarified third century church sentiment on the afterlife with these words. Souls of Christian martyrs go immediately to paradise. All others, good and bad, go to Hades, which was believed to be an actual place inside the earth. According to Tertullian, in Hades there are two divisions, uh, one for the righteous who are in Hades receiving temporary rewards, and, and the other for the wicked who are somehow being punished. Tertullian goes on to say that at the resurrection, the soul is reunited with the flesh for eternal rewards or punishment, followed by the righteous who are raised body and soul, and the wicked who are tormented forever. Now, of course, this description gets us closer to what many Christians think about the afterlife today, and yet we must admit it's still very different. Today, most Christians do not delineate between saved people and martyred people, as if martyrs have a kind of VIP pass that gets them directly into heaven, whereas merely saved people who are not martyrs go down into this place called Hades and await judgment. 
It's not until the 4th century and beyond, especially throughout medieval theology, such as Dante's Inferno from the 14th century, that we begin to get to an afterlife that reflects what many Christians think of today. Now, I apologize for the church history lesson, but it's so very important. Because what we often do when reading the Bible is we layer our contemporary thoughts onto it and think that our thoughts were actually somehow Jesus' thoughts. And yet, what is most often the case is that our thoughts are the culmination of thought that has been evolving for millennia. And that is especially true when it comes to the afterlife. And so, to be clear, when Jesus says in this parable, at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, it's important to note that Jesus isn't speaking here from a 21st century perspective on the afterlife. In fact, it's important to note that he's not even speaking from a 14th century or a 4th century or even a 2nd century Christian perspective on the afterlife. And this is because Jesus wasn't even a Christian. Jesus was a Jew. As I mentioned in my sermon two weeks ago, remembering that Jesus was a 1st century Jew places us within the thinking of the earliest Jesus followers who looked at life through a lens that's called Jewish apocalyptic perspective. According to Jewish apocalyptic perspective, the end of Rome's reign was quickly approaching. According to Jewish apocalyptic perspective, the Son of Man would, with might and violence, overthrow the empire. According to Jewish apocalyptic perspective, the evil would either be annihilated or purged. Besides these many differences on the afterlife, if we're being honest, what Jesus is saying in this parable about the end of the age raises a ton of unanswered questions, such as, are the angels only separating those who are living on this earth? Or what about people who have died? And, and, and for those who have died, where exactly are they? And while this verse says that the wicked will go into a furnace, it says nothing about the righteous. Where do the righteous go? And of course, the whole idea of a furnace is a metaphor. Only Dante and people within his consciousness imagined an actual furnace as some kind of place that tortured people who didn't believe just the right things. <laughs> okay, so, so enough. I, I hope I've made my point. This parable is not the place from which we derive convictions on the afterlife, whatever that is. Rather, these words are a fitting conclusion for all of the parables in Matthew chapter 13 uh, that we've considered over the last several weeks. In this sermon series, we've seen that the kingdom of heaven is like a generous farmer who scatters seed on every kind of soil with audacious hope in the possibility of every person. And that is good. In this sermon series, we've seen that the kingdom of heaven is like trees and bread that give rest and sustenance to all without any kind of discrimination. And that too is good. In this sermon series, we've seen that the kingdom of heaven is like a field in which wheat and weeds live out life together because we are all each, both wheat and weeds, in process of becoming more whole. And that also is very good. 
And because the kingdom of heaven is so very good, in last week's parable, Jesus likened the kingdom of heaven to treasure and pearls that are so valuable that grown adults have the joy of children and they want to sell all that they have in order to participate in its goodness. Now, with all of this in mind, we arrive at the very last parable in Matthew chapter 13 and probably find ourselves asking alongside everyone else, well, sure, Sure, God, generously scattering seed on every kind of soil is good, and sure, indiscriminately providing food and rest is good, and, and sure, living out life together, allowing wheat and weeds to commingle is good. But what about, and then go ahead and fill in the blank. Some of the things that I would fill in the blank with would be things like, well, what about the wicked who are forever wicked? And what about the injustices that harm the innocent? And what about the evil that has done so much violence in this world? And when we begin to ask questions like this, can, can you feel what begins to happen? Along with these very important questions, our hands become fists. Along with these very important questions, our hearts start to grow closed. Along with these very important questions, our imaginations begin to fixate on all that must be done in order to make things just. And so, in this parable, Jesus makes one thing very clear about the end, which is ultimate judgment, whatever that is, it is not our concern or work in this world. Ultimate judgment, what whatever that is, about who is good and who is bad, who is blessed and who is who is cursed, well, well, that also is not our concern or work in this world. And this brings me to a very important question, which is, what then is our concern and work in this world? I'm going to begin by talking about our concern, and then I will conclude by talking about our work, our concern. According to this parable, our concern is that everything belongs. You see, we're not God and we're not the angels, and so we have nothing to do with the separating and the deciding and the discerning and the delineating. That, that, that is divine work, not ours. And so according to this parable, our concern is that everything belongs. Another way to put it is our concern is that everything here in this world is being caught up into the kingdom of heaven. Now, you may have missed this because the furnace language is so provocative, but, but remember its point is that the end, whatever that is, has nothing to do with us. That is divine concern. That concern, according to this parable, is the work of the divinity, not humans. Now, now please stick with me here. Most of our Bibles read this parable as follows. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. But, but here's the thing. In the Greek, the word for fish is the very word that ends up on the back of people's car, ichthus, which became the acronym for Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. But here's the thing. This passage doesn't contain the word ichthus. This passage literally has no fish. <laughs> Isn't that curious? Now, one thing that may be helpful in order to help understand what's going on in this parable is to realize that, that the net is actually better translated as dragnet, a dragnet. 
Now, just for a moment, think about a dragnet. A person is in a boat, and they drop a dragnet that sinks to the bottom of the sea. Then the boat moves along the sea, and the dragnet follows along behind and catches everything that it slips and slides over. Can, can you see this in your mind's eye? I hope that you can because, because it's really beautiful. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, and it gathers every fish, every ichthus. No, that word is not in this passage. Rather, the text tells us that the dragnet gathers up every ganus, which can be translated descendant or family or people or nation or traits or class. And so, according to Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that gathers up everything. Every kind of fish, every kind of shell, every kind of rock, every kind of sunken rubbish. I mean, you name it, a dragnet gathers it all up. Now, let's pause here. I mean, we always want to get to the end, right? We want to get to the end, whatever that means, so quickly. But according to this parable, the end, which includes discerning good from bad and righteous from wicked, is divine work, not human work. And so, the portion of the parable that speaks directly to we humans is the part that explains that the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that is gathering up everything. And that, you see, is our concern. Good, bad, righteous, wicked... I mean, we do like to play the judge, especially we religious people, but in this parable, that is not our concern. Prior to the end, whatever that means, is a kingdom of heaven that is like a dragnet that is gathering up and collecting everything. Now, if we follow this idea to its conclusion, I think we could reasonably say that prior to the end, whatever that means, is a kingdom of heaven in which everything all of the fish, all of the shells, all of the rocks, all of the sunken rubbish, the good, the bad, and the broken, all of it, all of it belongs. It belongs because it's caught up into the dragnet, which is like the kingdom of heaven. Think about that. This is revolutionary especially for religious people who consider themselves the arbiters of morality. But, but, but what if we came to realize that such arbitration is not our concern? What if our concern was to, like a dragnet, declare again and again and again, over and over, to every single person and to every single thing in this world, you, that, it, everything is caught up into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that would sound a lot less like Dante's Inferno and more like Jesus who proclaims the gospel in Luke chapter 4 in which the favor of the Lord is upon you. And by you, Jesus is referring to, well, everyone. Mike, that's a slippery slope. I mean, if we stop discerning right and wrong, good and bad, up and down, in and out, then this whole thing is going to go to hell in a handbasket. And notice how quickly we're back to Dante's Inferno rather than abiding within Jesus' kingdom. Which brings me to our work. 
In this parable, everything is caught up into the dragnet, and then at the end, whatever that means, the divine separates good from bad. Which makes me want to ask, how does the good become good? Right? Like if everything is in the dragnet, everything is within the purview of the kingdom of heaven, and we're all in it together, well, well, how does the good become good? Well, Dante's world of religious people would probably say things like fear, shame, guilt, and duty, right? That, that is what snaps people into shape. And yet, fear may make people behave, but it doesn't actually make people better. Just as shame and guilt may make people act differently, but shame and guilt cause people to hide in trees and cover with leaves as well. Similarly, duty may make people conduct their lives more properly, but duty is incapable of changing a person's heart. Oh, but Mike, what about Dante's Inferno? Honestly? Honestly, I I would like to say over and over again and again to religious people, to hell with Dante's Inferno. To hell with it. Infernos of fear and shame and guilt and duty do not nurture goodness. Fear, shame, guilt, and duty cause people to hide and to cower and to disintegrate and to pretend in order to belong and to be loved. But what if everyone and everything already belongs and is already loved? Well, then our work would be to go out of our way and to be as thoughtful as possible about expressing and extending belonging and love to every person, which, as I understand it, coheres with a truly good gospel. And so, Jesus declares the favor of the Lord upon you, and Jesus shares meals with seemingly everyone, and Jesus heals and feeds and forgives, and the Apostle Paul gives this all a name. He calls it grace, which is a gift that cannot be earned, but rather is bestowed upon every person, kind of like a dragnet gathering up everything. Perhaps it's time that we Christians do away with the Jesus fish. Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior, believe or else. Because there's a kingdom called heaven that is like a dragnet in which everything and everyone belongs. And belonging, belonging that precedes behavior and love, extravagant and everlasting love that precedes belief, Well, at Pearl, we truly believe that it's this kind of belonging and love that gives birth in the world to healthy and whole and loving humans, which is the divine hope that we see in Jesus, whom we're learning to call Lord. May it be so, and let us pray. God, we so easily categorize and judge rather than accept and love shape us into your dragnet, which exists to include every person. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, 
or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.